Uh, we are at the moment as a church looking at the book of Romans and its rich theology and calling upon our lives under the Lord Jesus Christ. But I've been asked by Riley, our regular pastor, um, to preach on a different passage today, which may be a bit of a reprieve for some, given how heavy Romans has been as we've been looking at the wrath of God in chapter 1 and the holiness of God. So we're going to look at the book of 3 John. That's not John chapter 3. This is 3 John or 3 John. And um, there's a Bible at the back if you wish to have one. Uh, you can grab one of those. It's a book. It's a tiny little book. It's only one chapter long, so we're going to read a whole book today. And it's the book that comes before the book of Jude, and Jude is preceded by Revelation, if that helps you orient yourself. So it's a very small one. So the third letter of John, 3 John. The elder, sorry, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Before we go any further, let's ask that the Lord might open our eyes to his holy word. Heavenly Father, we approach you knowing that we are completely unworthy before you on our own. But by your grace, you sent your Son so that we could be perfect, matchless in beauty in your sight through Jesus Christ. May you open your word to our hearts as you have brought this to bear on our lives writing it directly for our lives to be governed and molded under your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. As an English teacher, I had to teach this unit on the history of literature. I thought it would be a fantastic unit, kind of giving students a perspective in the richness of literary history. Unfortunately, it was extremely dry and tedious, and the students hated it. 
which made it very problematic for me, um, given I'm a passionate English teacher. And as try as I may, I just couldn't get them excited about this idea of the Renaissance, about the writers of Romanticism, even though they weren't romantic. And yeah, go figure that one out. And talking about modernism and postmodernism, all of these different eras of time that were broadly assigned to period of time due to certain viewed commonalities of that time. So, for example, during the Romantics, this idea, this elevation of emotion and deep pathos, or during the Enlightenment, the pursuit of knowledge and seeking that which could be seen objectively. So, there's many, many theories or time periods that have been put through history, arts, language, and our society and culture throughout the centuries. And that brings us to modernism. Now, modernism was this time period associated for the early 20th and late 19th century, which is the 1800s, sorry, the late 19th and the early 20th. Let me get that right. So that's the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And it placed this elevation upon objective truth um, in structures, you know, it was clean cut, you know, um, rather boxy. If you look at some homes, you can drive around and you see, oh, that's a modernist-inspired home because it's just like a box or a cube. There's actually one right next to where we live at the moment. And I thought it was a garage when they were building it. And then, oh, it's a home. Oh, that's pretty hideous, in my opinion. Um, but they obviously like it. So they might be modernists. Um, and then came along this, this uh, crazy-haired guy by the name of Einstein. And he introduced the public to this theory, this scientific theory in physics known as the theory of relativity. Now, without getting into detail, there's two dimensions of that, um, special relativity and general relativity. But essentially, culturally, it brought into the fray this idea that time as a fixed element of human existence and reality is actually not fixed. It's relative. For example, if I hop into a spaceship and I travel at the speed of light, I will not age as quickly as you age. Now, that's not a benefit for many of you. Or it may be if you want extra wisdom. Um, but this idea that time is relative, it's dependent upon gravity and dependent upon what it's connected to, kind of undercut this whole idea of grounded, based, objective truth, which led to the rise of postmodernism. That's the start of the mid-20th century. And... Out of this movement came through the expression of the arts, through language, through architecture, a more kind of, if we're using architecture as an example, more curvaceous approach, a more out there, buildings on a lean sort of approach, defying gravity and reality. Or um, for thought and philosophy, this idea that there is no objective truth that you can latch onto and anchor your life in. It's all about the subjective experiential reality. You define reality. It's all about the, the agent or the, the person who is defining what objectivity is. And then out of this movement, some have suggested we're in the post-postmodernism 
um, time period. And admittedly, I don't know very much about post-modernism. I'm not particularly a fan of post-modernism, even though there is some merit to it. But this idea of now that, no, there is no objective reality, but there are certain standards and objective by subjective values that we ought to adhere to in our society, such as the movement of LBGTQI+. This idea that, no, this ought to be a cultural norm that is accepted by everyone. And it's now this conflicting kind of mismatch of objective with the subjective, but they're always in tension, and it's just this muddy sort of area and space that we find ourselves in. And you can kind of see this reflective in society where you have the rise of um, Trump-like figures, extremely nationalistic, returning back to the, the good old days, in contrast to the radical liberal or the left on the other side with the um, definancing of the police and this whole breakdown of the traditional values and institutions. Now, why do I share all of this history mumbo-jumbo philosophical jargon? Like, what's the point of what I'm trying to say? I'm trying to say in this short letter, it's only a chapter long, very few words. You can read it under two minutes. You can, you can read it quicker than you can brush your teeth, for some of us. And yet, a central theme that we're going to see in this book, and a big idea we're going to see, is the centrality of truth and that living in harmony with truth grounded in God is cause for joy. See, out of all of these theories, it's all this pursuit of trying to understand the reality and fabric of the world in which we live. It's all a pursuit of trying to understand truth and how we are to live in this world, this world that we've been thrust into as children and we're totally his values and then we kind of figure it out as we go along and it's all about the ultimate pursuit of purpose and by extension happiness but here in this letter we see that the ultimate cause for joy is a life lived in harmony with truth that is what we're going to anchor three john in as we go through we're going to see how this book as small as it is can have profound impact upon our lives so i'm going to do this through the lens of three angles three points uh, as we examine the passage and we're going to look at the first point is one to four which is walking in truth is cause for joy walking in the truth is cause for joy so let's have a read of verses 1 through to 4 again. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So 3 John is a letter we read between two characters, personalities, the elder and his beloved Gaius. Little else is known about these two personalities. 
Now, theologians and historians have tried to identify who the elder is, and they've put various argumentations forward. And they've tried to also work out who, who Gaius is. But the short answer is, we're not told within the book itself. But what does remain very clear is a deep affection that characterizes their relationship. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now, this is in some sort of sentimental or emotional love, but a deep love that is grounded in their commonality of the love of truth. As we see here in this short letter, that beloved appears four times. Verses 1, 2, 5, and verse 11. There may not have been much written about Gaius and the elder, but what has been penned is a deep bond of affection between Gaius and his um, Gaius and the elder. And this is grounded in truth, with truth being spoken in this short letter no less than six times. Proportionally, these two words are there a lot. We see here that the elder's affection towards Gaius is expressed very warmly. He says, you know, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes with your soul. Now, this isn't a isn't a prayerful petition for good fortune, wealth, and prosperity and blessing. It's simply a greeting of endearment. It's well-wishing, just as someone would extend that favor to someone that, you know, you know, I hope you're well. How are you going? Um, I hope uh, you're experiencing joy and peace at the moment. That's what John is here. But once again, showing the affection that he has. What we do see is that Gaius is a really commendable man. He's a man, in verse 3, if we have a look, who's testified as living in the truth. And verses 3 to 4, walking in the truth. And this is cause for celebration. He says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came, and I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. For the author of 3 John, his pinnacle of joy is that his spiritual children are walking in the truth. It's this that Gaius is doing that brings brings joy to the elder. It's not his activity in the church, how busy he is setting out chairs or arranging the tables for hospitality in the house church. It's not for his fleeing of sin. It's not for his brotherly affection to those in his church community that um, brings, brings joy to the elder. It's not his care for the marginalized. No, as was mentioned in the notices, the central thing that we want to keep main is what is the main thing here that brings truth, uh, which brings joy, and that is the truth that brings joy to the elder. It's Gaius's positional state with the truth, not his productiveness in the truth. It's not his busyness as a Christian. So the question we need to ask, as you may have noticed as we've read this letter, there doesn't seem to be much specificity about anything. We're not really told what the truth is. We're certainly not told who the elder or Gaius are. 
we're not really told either. There's no mention of Jesus in this passage. Is this even a Christian book, it might be argued? Well, it is. Jesus and the gospel are actually here, just expressed in different words. So what is this truth that is cause for joy? As we've seen, it's, it's a recurring theme. And this is actually where we need to circle back to the debate of authorship that can actually yield insight. So as mentioned earlier, theologians, historians have tried to identify who this elder is. And some have actually arrived at the conclusion that the elder mentioned in 3 John is actually the same author, the same pen writer as the Gospel of John. And traditionally, with the early church fathers, this book has actually been ascribed to John the Apostle. People who were very close in connection with the actual authorship of date of this book. And this has been the prevailing view of the early church fathers. And that's really helpful because we can have a look and when we actually use a concordance and look at the Gospel of John, truth proportionately is talked about a lot, multiple times, compared to the other Gospels. It's a central theme that um, is written in the Gospel of John, which is historically and traditionally ascribed to John the apostle it's also connected this truth is also connected to the intrinsic person of jesus and his message let me repeat that it's not just uh, an aspect of jesus it's the person of jesus the writer of john in the gospel ascribes the personhood of jesus as being the very embodiment of truth he says, for example, in John 14, 6, Jesus recording the words of Jesus says, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Not only does he say, I possess the truth, he says, I am the truth. Therefore, reality, how we are to anchor ourselves, our philosophical lens ought to be grounded in the person of Jesus. And it's in Jesus where the truth of God's love is revealed. It's in the truth of his death and resurrection and the union to God through Christ. This is truth. You read the Gospels and you see that Jesus makes truth claims. That is what this truth here in this letter is. When we see in reference to the truth, walking in the truth, is walking in the person of Jesus Christ and his way, being a disciple of Jesus it's in the truth that if you're in Christ, you have the greatest cause for joy. Do you believe that? Do you stop and do you ponder, I have the greatest cause for joy? In a world that's so desperately seeking its truth in empty, in empty paths that lead to death and destruction, or as we heard last week, in, in wells that are poison feeding on food that leads to death. Here we have, in this short letter, if we didn't have anything else, 3 John tells you that the greatest cause of joy is in the truth, that is, in the name, that is, Jesus Christ. What a gift. If you are in Christ, you have the greatest cause for joy. 
the greatest cause. There's nothing better. No footy game, no grand final, no Brisbane Lion victory or Parramatta Eels finally winning. No delicious food, no relationship that you could possibly have. Nothing. No experience on a holiday. No personal sense of satisfaction in a career. Nothing is greater than the cause for joy that is found in the truth of Jesus Christ. And also that means that this is anchored, this truth isn't anchored in the subjective, but grounded in the objective, grounded in reality. Which means when life has its lows, which it will, and you are tossed to and fro upon the circumstances of life, you can come back to the truth and have real joy. Not happiness that is grounded upon circumstances, but true joy, despite circumstances, still able to praise God for his anchoring of your life in him, which is no greater cause for joy exists. Why is this? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why is this? Because Jesus says, come those who are weary and I will give you rest. This is why the truth is joy. As we read in verse 4 again, no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This reminds us that we in this, this church building right here are surrounded by a community that is sick from feasting on lies which lead to death. They're spending money on food which is not bread. They're binging on food that is sawdust and filling their stomachs up, bloating them with poor ideology and sickness. We all have family members and friends who we know who are gorging themselves on the world's philosophies only to need to, to lead to a sickness of death. We have a family and friends who are lying to themselves, dying to the poison of idolatry. And the thing is, we were no better than them. The only reason we can walk in the truth is because we were called to the truth. As other um, epistles written by um, other apostles, such as the Apostle Paul, talk about, we who are elect, we were called into this truth. We didn't just walk into it of our own, oh, you know, just walk on into the truth. No, we were called first onto the path. We were taken off the path of destruction, the way that leads to death, and we were brought onto the path of life. That ought to give us a humility and a compassion and an eagerness to call our friends and family to this cause of no greater joy. It was only the truth that Christ opened our eyes, that he gave us the greatest joy of salvation, that we now sitting here can be in a community of those who are walking in truth. 
who are free from the wrath of God for all time. No condemnation. I keep stressing it because it's true. This is more true. If only God would give us more spiritual sight to see, there is no greater joy than what we have. It's more precious than the breath in your lungs or any amount of financial capital that you have in your bank account. And are we captivated by that joy? And if not, let's read the Scriptures again. Let's see the Word that brings life to the soul because it talks about Christ. Christ says, all Scripture leads and points towards Him. The Scriptures all point to Christ because He is the truth. Where He says, as reminded, I am the way and the truth and the life. So now that we've established and hopefully our hearts are on fire with this reality that walking in the truth is cause for joy. We're going to see in our next point, verses 5 to 10, the importance of actually working for truth, not in opposition to it. So if you come with me, uh, we're going to look at verses 5 to 10. We're going to focus on, Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. So notice how John has established the foundation as to what now the activity is of Gaius. Verse 6, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, or Trephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Here we are introduced to another character, Diotrephes. And we're going to see in verses 5 to 10 that there are two ways. And we want to be walking, working in the way of truth. Working in the way of truth. So we've seen that Gaius is faithfully serving his fellow walkers in the truth. You know, the apostle uh, says here, the elder, verse 5, is a faithful thing you do in all your effort for these brothers. Verse 8, support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. He is serving these strangers. And they, because of his faithfulness, have actually returned and they have testified to Gaius' love for the church. In his honouring of others, he has been honoured himself. Now this may have been, this may have meant that he's providing lodging, we're not told precisely, but what we do know is he's acting in a generous, hospitable manner. He's providing lodging, he's making them comfortable, maybe he's, he's giving them heaps of food, making sure that they have everything they need. Why? So that they can go and proclaim the gospel for the name Jesus at no cost. And the elder also asks that this hospitality might be extended to supporting them in a befitting manner, worthy of God, when they would leave on their journey. 
So welcome them in and send them out in the, in the grace that you've been given. For the purpose, they have gone out for the sake of the name. So these strangers are missionary of sorts, preaching free of charge to unbelievers. And they're doing this in Jesus' name. Now the reality is, Gaius is unlikely to probably travel the paths that these missionaries, these strangers are traveling. And yet, we ought to support, this is what is said, verse 8, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers in the truth, for the truth. We may not be able to go to the deepest, darkest reaches of Africa or be able to go to remote villages in Asia or to go to South America in our lives. But the thing is, we all have the ability to walk there through our finances. We all have the ability to partner in the gospel by supporting missionaries. And that is something that, uh, as a collection of churches' sovereign grace, strongly believes in. Corporately, our church partners financially in giving 10%, a percentage, 10%, for planting, church development, and global missions efforts. Why? Because as a denomination, we believe that we ought to be supporting fellow gospel workers in the spread of the name through our finances. And in doing so, we are extending ourselves. Little Sovereign Grace Parramatta is able to go to all across the world due to that financial support. Or you, in your own family, may have decided to partner with Supporting Covenant Mercies or many, many other organizations that are seeking, Christian organizations that are seeking to bring about gospel truth through their ministry and service the hands and feet of Jesus into communities. And there are many, 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 many. So are we partnering? Are we individually and as a church being generous for our fellow workers for the truth because when we're saved we're called into a team that is a participatory team where everyone is called to play their part there's no freeloaders you don't just come along and get all of the benefits and privileges without participating Um, Maybe it's the influence of Riley, given that I'm going to use another sport analogy, but it is appropriate. I was thinking about this the other day, that when um, you see soccer or football or any other sport code that involves a team, if an individual hogs the ball to themselves, the team is at a disadvantage because the ball cannot travel far enough as when a team collectively is passing it along. It can travel further and quicker when it is passed by the different team members. It can, can travel hundreds of metres with a kick compared to a dribble all the way up the soccer field or on an AFL field. It's easier to score a goal with a team that is participating, running the ball across the entirety of the field, running the race together when we're partnering. And that is what we can do as individuals and as a church community. Now, on another dimension, we do not have um, missionaries popping in 
And so we're not able to kind of show that generosity and hospitality um, at the moment, that welcoming spirit um, to directly to missionaries. But even as Christians, we have strangers in our own midst, don't we? People that maybe we are not as accustomed to, maybe people we don't normally associate with as much, a different culture and maybe a, a different life stage. And we're all able to extend that generous hospitality in spirit, a spirit of welcoming generosity. Because what a blessing to have these words spoken of you as well through Jesus Christ, as God's word is God speaking to himself. For him to say to us when we're faithful and participating in the gospel work, having us testified before the church, seated in the heavenly realms, God being pleased that we are partnering with fellow gospel workers for the extending of his kingdom. Is your reputation, is your life testifying for your love, that cause of joy that you have? And it is a challenge at times. Because the reality is, as we see in verse 9, there is another character at play that so often dwells in our own hearts, diatrephes, characteristic of selfishness, self-seeking, and stinginess. We read in verse 9, the elder writes these very sobering words. Imagine that, being immortalized for all time in God's word as someone who lacks hospitality, who is selfish, putting himself first, and is talking wicked nonsense. Verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. He's been talking wicked nonsense against us, that is the elder. And as we see, if that was not as bad enough, we see he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. It's kind of like one of those child, well, I'm not having fun, so you can't either. That's kind of what Diotrephes is doing here. He's not recognizing the authority of the elder. He's putting himself first, and he's, it's a characteristic of selfishness. He's the opposite of the spirit of generosity and hospitality that Gaius shows. When are we tempted to have our little diatrephes reign our hearts? You know, when we're characterized by selfishness. Oh, I know I'm on church packed down, but they can do it. Or I know that I'm supposed to be there and serve in kids' ministry with enthusiasm, but I just don't feel like it today. Or... I, I just don't think I want to actually come and participate in the body gathering today or next week, actually for the next month because, because it doesn't suit my agenda. It doesn't suit what I want to be doing. Spirit of selfishness characterizes diatrephes. And it has a consequence on the church as well. It affects the body. In his selfishness, he is actually stopping others from being able to extend themselves and being hands and feet to these strangers who are spreading the word. In effect, 
He is stopping them serving Jesus Christ. That is a terrible thing for diatrophies to be doing. It's a mercy that the elders actually going to talk to him. We're not told what happens, but I hope that Diotrephes listened and recognized his error and he actually starts to become more of a character like Gaius. Which leads us to our final point in verses 11 to 12. So we have seen already that the greatest cause for joy is walking in the truth. And that we want to, in our next point, we want to work for the truth. And we've seen that in contrast, Gaius who's working for the truth and Diotrephes who's not. And then we see in our final point here that how you live actually testifies as to whether you're truly walking in the truth. Whether you actually are or it's just by name, just by association. Let's have a look at verse 11 and then verse 12. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Remember, he's just said that after talking about diatrephes. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. From the truth itself, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. As we've seen, that there are two ways to engage with the truth. And it actually reveals the condition of our heart. If we're walking in the truth, working for the truth, then it reveals that our heart has been anchored in Christ. But if we're working in a life that's characterized in walking against the truth, in actions that are against Christ, that it's a way of showing that our hearts may not actually be anchored in Christ as we profess Because the thing is, out of the overflow of the heart, our actions reveal themselves. And also, here we see the elder saying, be wise with what you're imitating. Because if you are imitating good, then that is good. But if you are imitating evil, then that is bad. Now, I know I'm stating that in simple terms, but how easily we forget that. Now, we're not to be fruit pickers, but we are supposed to be wise, choosing what are we imitating? What is the world feeding us that we are tempted to imitate as we view it? Consumers of social media, consumers of um, your streaming shows, consumers of the culture around us. Are we imitating what is good? Those voices that are speaking in. Or are we imitating what is evil? Because how our life shows itself reveals whether we have actually had a heart captivated by Christ. We are called to live a life in harmony with the life that we have received in grace. Talk is cheap. Saying that you profess belief in Christ is simple enough. But do you live that truth out? Is your life characterized by that truth? Or is it a tokenistic thing you attach on the Sunday gathering? Are you living in harmony with your beliefs? Or, are, or is there a contradiction between who you say you are and who you actually are? And one way of self-assessing your heart is to see 
Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And what a joy it is to see God. If you're a Christian, then you are walking in the truth. And I encourage you to continue to take those steps every day, practically walking in the truth, imitating good, knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him, and He has opened your eyes to that truth, and that you have no greater cause than for joy. And then out of that, you extend yourself to hospitality. And out of that, you extend yourself in imitating good. And out of that, you are drawn deeper and deeper into the infolding of God's love, recognizing that you have the warmth and protection of the Father's abode. And this is why you have abundant joy. And if you are not yet in Christ, can I encourage you to come to Him because whoever does evil has not seen God. And without Christ, we are all broken, fallen, and evil. But in Christ, we can have the exceeding joy of knowing that we are walking in the truth in Him. Let us pray, and then we'll go into our final song. Heavenly Father, thank you for your gift of your son. You didn't have to send him, but you did. But in a way, you did have to send him because of who you are. You are love. We see the paradox at play. That because of who you are, you sent your son. But because of who you are, you didn't have to send your son. But you wanted to, out of desire, out of love, so that you could bring many sons and daughters to walk in the truth to live in a way that imitates the good. We thank you for that, Heavenly Father. Thank you for redeeming us from the pit of death, putting our feet on a path that leads to righteousness and goodness and a joy that cannot be touched by the circumstances of this life. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen.